0: Hi there, welcome along to this week's High Performance Podcast. Can I just start by saying a huge thank you to all of you for downloading and talking about and sharing the podcast. The numbers for this series, for series four, are just through the roof, and we are delighted that we're impacting more people than ever before. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, to explain it in a sentence, it's just time for you to sit and build your own personal armour up. It's lessons for life, it's tips and tricks for how you can feel strong mentally and physically and take it into your everyday life and today's episode is once again going to teach you so so much here's what you can expect.
1: On a case, catch the perfect game you know in a game of rugby if you can control 50 minutes of the game you'll win the game I want a team that can control it for 80 minutes imagine going out there and you're impossible to play against impossible when you've got the ball they can't get it off you when they've got the ball They've got so much pressure they're giving it back to you, and that's unrelenting. That'd be fascinating.
2: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has
0: professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might
2: be open to the perfect role, like me. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be.
0: I really can't wait for you to hear this. It's one of my favourite episodes. Before we go any further, please rate and review this podcast. Please check us out on YouTube. Just type in High Performance Podcast onto YouTube. Follow us at High Performance on Instagram. But whatever you do, make the High Performance Podcast part of your weekly ritual to make your life richer and greater than ever. Thanks for being with us. This week's episode is a cracker. Here it is. Hi there, I'm Jake Humphrey and you're listening to High Performance, the podcast that delves into the minds of some of the most successful athletes, visionaries, entrepreneurs and artists on the planet and aims to unlock the very secrets to their success. With me, as always, author, professor, lecturer, rugby fan, Damien Hughes. I know why you're smiling.
3: Yeah, I'm really excited about uh, today's um, podcast, Jake. I think we're in the company of a coaching alchemist, somebody that makes... Every situation he inherits better and does so through developing and coaching people. So I think it's a real privilege to be here and get a chance to chat with them.
0: Yeah, we are both really intrigued to be spending the next little while with today's guest. He was a rugby player before becoming a coach. He's been involved with nine different teams over the past 25 years. However, it's not been easy all the way from a serious illness to losing a job he loved. And it's also not all been about rugby What about being a teacher? What did that do to equip our guest for the role that he has today? It's also not just about sport. How does he get to the heart, not just the head, of his players? It's an absolute pleasure to welcome to the podcast the England Rugby Head Coach, Eddie Jones. Hi, boys. Pleasure to be here. Mate, thanks very much for joining us. So, in your mind, what is high performance? Uh,
1: Well, I'm not sure. Uh, I think you're always just striving to be better. I think when you're high performing, you've got a number of things working. You've got the right people. You've got the right vision. Uh, you've got the right environment, but it changes all the time. Um, so I can't, I don't think you could say this is high performance. I think it's constantly changing. It's dynamic and, and your ability to, to observe and read what's needed for that environment at that time is the most important thing.
0: So could you talk us through the process that you go through to observe, engage the environment around you and how you react to it? Maybe some real-world examples of when you've had to change things. Yeah, probably the best
1: example is Japan. Um, so I went there, um, a team that hadn't won a World Cup game for 20 years. Um, their average score against the top-10 country was 85 nil defeat. So the first thing I knew I had to change was their... The way they thought because they were happy to be losers and the whole rugby environment were happy for them to lose as long as they played well in the last 20 or 30 minutes of a game so we just kept painting the picture in their head of of what they could do so we're a small team can we play faster than anyone else yes we can can we play smarter yes we can and then we created the the program to support that so it was just constantly driving that message we're going to be the fastest smartest team in the world. Train like it we train we changed the training day to three times a day um, which the players hated initially but by the end they saw it as a as a medal of honour that they were able to train harder than any other team Um, and it shows you where you can take people Um, because the story shows they did well at the 2015 World Cup and did even better at the 2019 World Cup. See, that to me seems like quite a
3: powerful approach that you take, Eddie, that in every team that you go into, from the Brumbies right the way through to England, that you don't come in with one set way. You seem to adapt and be almost a chameleon to the environment. What kind of things do you look for
1: that give you a clue as to what you're going to shape it to be? I think history is always one of the most important, the history of the team, the history of the players, the history of the society they're in. Um, you know, I think you've got to understand how the how the players live their lives um, because that will give you an indication of how they approach their sport. Um, and, and then um, you look at the people, you know, look at the people closely, see what they've been through, what desires they have, and how are we going to get some
0: commonality? So you don't treat the whole team as the same? You work very much individually?
1: Uh, well, I think, you know, when you're talking about teaching, one of the things I learned from teaching is that initially I did, first couple of years I did, I think you call it supply teaching here. Yes, yeah, right. Where traditionally you get all the worst classes. So, you know, a teacher has a day off when they have the worst classes. So they're generally 15-, 16-year-old boys so I'd have the same 15-, 16-year-old boys for six lessons, you know, be in maths, geography, PE. And, and you walk into a classroom like that and you've, you've got to work out, right, who do I need to control? Uh, who's going to help me? Um, what areas of the, the room I don't have to worry about? So your ability to, to get a feel for the... For the group, I think it's important. And certainly in teams, it's the same. You know, you walk into a team for the first time and you look at the players, you think, right, who do I need on my side here immediately? Uh, Who do I need to get rid of? Uh, Who can maybe I can keep? And then you're working with those players.
3: So what characteristics do you look for then, Eddie, when you walk into a room like that? So if if it's somebody that you want to keep?
1: Uh, People that are going to be a positive influence that either have a a massive work ethic or have great character. Like, you know, uh, probably a good example is Haskell with England. Uh, he'd been a bits and pieces player and he had something about him um, and the, and you could tell the boys liked him, um, but he, was, he wasn't he was possibly brave enough to be himself. Like a big physical guy, play like that, don't be afraid to make mistakes and
0: then be that life for the, the party type character off the field. And you wanted that from him. How did you get him to that place then? Um, well, it's always the, the
1: communication you have with them. Uh, I think at the start of the Six Nations, I guaranteed him a spot for the whole tournament um, to, to make him believe.
0: Yeah, And maybe to take a bit of pressure off as well? Yeah,
1: take the pressure off him,
0: yeah. Because you
1: always, yeah, and you guys know better than anyone, that you're always either trying to put pressure on or you're trying to take pressure off, and your ability to read what they need at that particular time is important.
3: See, but one of the great skills that I would attribute to you, Eddie, is your ability to read a room. Like we've had Dylan Hartley on the podcast that recounted the story that you put in your own book about your observations were based on how he spoke to one of the staff at Pennyhill Park and how he treated them with courtesy. What would you say are the skills to develop that
1: ability to read a room that anyone listening to this could adopt? Go and watch a general manager of a hotel. I learnt more from general managers of hotels than anywhere else. Uh, I used to have a mate who had a hotel, a millennium hotel around here, and he used to run the take our Hilton, and I'd go and have dinner with him. He was a rugby fan, and I'd just go and have dinner with him, and I'd watch him. and We'd have dinner, and he'd give me full attention, but he'd be able to see whether that way to put down the the knives and forks correctly, and then he'd call them over and and give them a word straight away. It was a brilliant lesson in observation. You know, you've got to you've got to be with the, with the person you you're with but at the same time be able to just keep an eye on what's going on and deal with it immediately.
0: That's not something that comes easy, though, to a lot of people. I wonder, apart from just observing how you honed that ability, because one thing you can't do as a rugby coach is become myopic. You can't get obsessed, can you, on one minute bit of detail. You've got a number of hats that you wear. I'm always fascinated by how you wear all those different hats but make the person you're with at that moment feel like they're getting... Everything all of Eddie Jones.
1: Yeah, I think teaching helped definitely teaching helped Um,
0: Are you surprised lots of teachers listen to this podcast? uh, No,
1: no, because I think teaching like coaching is becoming more complex um, And they're having to deal with more things But I think as I said with teaching you had to because you had the welfare of the kids So you got 30 kids you've got to be looking and put yourself in the position to watch those kids closely, uh, be looking at the little nuances between kids, seeing, like the school I first taught at was quite rough, so I had to be careful that the kids didn't break out in the fight, so you had to be watching, you had to be ready to, to intervene, and I think, you know, one of the problems we've got in sport at the moment, and I can probably speak more about rugby than any other sport, is that we've got a lot of kids now not being taught by teachers, sport. They're being taught by ex-players. And I think it's a it's a fundamental flaw in education. You need you – know, kids need to be taught um, and they don't need to be coached at an early age. Um, and we're, we're trying to turn high school teams into high performance teams where they should be just development teams. That's one of my – probably one of my bugbears at the moment. So what would you say is a distinction between teaching and coaching? Well, the end result. You know, with with teaching, it's you're always just trying to get the best out of the people uh, with coaching. Whilst you're getting the best out, you can have a happy team and you have a contended team and a driven team, but if you're not winning, you don't get to do it anymore. So you've got to you've got to drive that to be an effective currency in coaching. And the currency in coaching is winning. Uh, currency in, in education is, is building the child up.
0: One thing I'm, I'm really interested in talking about on this podcast is, is self-belief. And we often discuss the fact that you might be wrong in thinking you can do anything, but there's no benefit to thinking that you can't. You might as well believe it, and if it happens, then great. And you, what you spoke about there when you discussed working with the Japanese team at the beginning, you said, I, we decided to tell them that they'd be the quickest team in the world, the best team in the world. The, the power of your mind is such, a, is such a huge topic on this podcast. How important do you think it is? And do you believe you can get any player to be a better player by believing they're a better player?
1: Oh, I think it helps. It definitely helps. I, I, I think I read Arsene Wenger's book recently and he was talking about how he'd tell every player that they were the special player today yeah, and, yeah. they, you know, you'd have 11 special players there. But getting players to believe, making them feel good, you know, that think, feel, act is, is so true. So you've got to get them to believe in themselves and believe in their strengths and the really good players are the ones who, who manufacture their own game and they play to their strengths. Like the not-so-good players are the players who don't understand what they can and can't do. You know, and the great examples, you know, most test cricketers are great examples of finding their own game. You know, the, the, particularly batsmen who, who bat over 50 are the guys who, who cultivate their game. They might have a lot of different shots, but they don't play those shots because they know that the shots that they can play to be a successful test cricketer is this amount. Steve Waugh was a great example. You know, first came in the Australian side, had every shot. averaged 30, got dropped, went back to club cricket, and made himself say so he couldn't get out and came back to test yeah. cricket and was one of the greatest batsmen of all time.
3: But how do you cultivate belief in yourself, Eddie? Uh,
1: i really got no idea, mate. Um, I think one of the things that helped me, I had a stroke in 2013 and before that I thought I was Superman. You know, nothing could stop me. Um, yeah. I thought I was okay coach um, and probably since then I've become a lot more Um, I don't know whether the word's compassionate, but a lot more understanding of other people um, and that they don't have the same obsession for me for winning and and doing things correctly, that they can do it in their own way. Um, And that's probably helped me create a better better version of myself, I think. I think. I'm not sure. So, Eddie, before the stroke
3: and Eddie after it, what would somebody see as the biggest difference between those two? Uh,
1: I think that I understand now more about people's own internal motivations and they won't be the same as mine. Um, yeah, I wanted my daughter, who's now 27, to be exactly like me, driven. And she wasn't, you know, she was pretty happy-go-lucky kid, didn't play sport hard, um, studied okay. I remember she got to grade 8 and the violin at, at the age of 12 because uh, Because wow. my wife wanted her to play the violin, and then she just quit. she said, "No, I'm not playing anymore um, and she's turned out that she's she went to university in England and she's turned out now she's working in rugby in Australia, and she's yeah you know, she's at it all the time, so it's it's funny how things turn around, but yeah, i think I think I understand people's motivations better now.
0: so before the stroke, people who weren't buying into your level of discipline and motivation. What did you think before the stroke was the right way to deal with those people? And what do you think now is the right way? Because we have a lot of leaders that listen to this that struggle with getting the people in their team to come on the journey with them.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it was more of a do what I say. And if you don't do what I say, well, I don't have much room for you. And now I think it's more a balance of sometimes you've got to still do that, Um, but but now guiding people to where they can go and particularly players now, like younger players now needed to be guided and they're much better educated players now, much better educated in in their psychological aspects, social aspects, skill aspects. So your ability to give them opportunities to find the best way to do it themselves rather than you telling them, I think, is, is the most important distinction.
0: So why did the stroke do that?
1: I think it it made me realise that you just can't keep going. You can't keep doing it. You know, I was relentless. I'd work and work and work. And when I had the struggle, I had to slow down a little bit and I had to think and I I found God in that time. Uh, I went to church um, and uh, so it was a a pretty significant event in my life.
3: See, what intrigues me on that, Eddie, is that You'd almost had a warning before this, hadn't you? I've heard you speak about your experience at Queensland where, yeah. where you were reacting to what had happened with Australia and you, you almost acted in haste and, and repented in leisure. Why didn't you learn the lesson at Queensland but it took something like a stroke to finally make you aware?
1: I think I was on the road but I think the stroke hastened the journey, so to speak, um, and made me realise I needed to change. And probably I wanted to change before, um, and I think there's a big difference between wanting and needing.
3: Sure. So, what did Mrs. Jones say about the difference?
1: Uh, yeah, we've had a up and down relationships at times, um, but I think she just takes me for what I am. Um, yeah, and we've she's she's been fantastic in that she's always there and supporting, but she's she she never has an active role, so to speak.
0: Which Eddie do you think she
1: prefers? Uh,
0: I'm not sure. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> she keeps you guessing. Yeah. I'm interested um, to just explore that relationship with God and why that that's been significant for you and, and for your career. How's that changed things?
1: Uh, just uh, it made me realise that I think we're all on on Earth for some sort of purpose, and 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 maybe the only thing I can be good at is coaching. So I wanted to make sure I, I maximised what I was supposed to be on earth for. There's, again, that great story out of Egner's book where he he goes up to to heaven uh, and the guy at the gate comes up to him and he says, what do you do, sir? Or what did you do, sir? And he says, I tried to win games of football. And and then the guy looks at him and says, surely you did something more meaningful than that.
0: (laughs) So do you let being a rugby coach define you entirely? We've had Johnny Wilkinson, who obviously you know well on this podcast. He told us that, doing the washing up is no less important than winning the Rugby World Cup because to win a game of rugby, you use your body to achieve a goal. The washing up is the same thing and that if he put more importance on being a rugby player than a dad or a husband or doing the washing up, no longer being a rugby player means he's less important and he wasn't willing to accept that. Do you define yourself as a, as a rugby coach?
1: Uh, I probably define myself as someone who has the opportunity to to help improve people. So I think that's pretty important. Um, and I did it as a teacher and now I'm doing it as a coach. So that's, that's, I think that's pretty important to me.
0: I would like to talk about the episode with Australia when you lost your job. What did that period teach you?
1: Well, I can remember losing it and thinking, I remember we went down to Canberra, we were living in Sydney, went down to Canberra and, and going shopping on a Saturday afternoon in Canberra. And I'd coached down there successfully. And people were looking at me as though I've committed murder. Um, and that was probably my perception. Um, but again, that was a that was a tough period. And I was talking to another coach the other day that just lost his job. And, and one of the things I would have done is sat down for six months, I would have gone, maybe floated down the Amazon or something and just thought about everything I did what I, what I needed to change, what, I, what, I, what did I do well and what did I need to change. And I was in too much of a hurry to prove people wrong. And that ended up, I didn't coach well for pro- probably another two years after that. I was still hell bent on proving people wrong rather than just coach and just enjoy the coaching process, um, which is what I do now. I love, I love coaching, I love making a team and, and trying to make a team stronger.
3: If we talk about your coaching ability then, Eddie, if we think about the four pillars of physical, tactical, technical and mental, where do you apportion most of your energy as a coach? Well, I think
1: tactical and mental are almost the same. Go on, say more about that. Well, I think the mental side is how you're thinking about the game and the tactical side is just the employment of those thoughts. Okay. And I think they've always got to fit together. I've been lucky enough... Uh, to have some great people supporting me, um, I've got a guy called David Pembroke in in Australia who uh, cultivates the media strategy, uh, and we don't, and I don't follow it a hundred percent because some of his ideas are way out here, but he he wants to control the environment, um, and the best one was for that New Zealand semi. Yeah, you know, we immediately went on, out on the attack at the start of the week. We wanted the New Zealand media to try to put pressure on the New Zealand team. You know, and we called them fans. We called the journalists uh, fans with keyboards. Um, and and he created that idea of circling the All Blacks during their harka. Um So I used those sort of people. I've got another sports psych who who is a tactician absolute tactician so he'll say they'll be thinking this you're going to be thinking this now how can you employ that and he's got some weird and wonderful ideas again we don't use them all but I think that's one of the things probably been able to do okay is, is get that that synergetic if that makes sense yeah and I think all the other stuff's the easy stuff brilliant in what way is it easy oh getting players fits easy Yeah, it's just effort. It's having the right program, having good coaches, and the and the what was the other pillar?
3: The physical, tactical, technical, and mental. So and you put to our uh, level,
1: it's not not a great. Yeah, at international level, we don't really coach rugby. Yeah, we're just trying to get a team organised, thinking the same way.
3: So when we interviewed Clive Woodward, then he spoke about the transferability of those skills, whether that was to his business or whether he felt he could go into soccer and do it there what's your view on that
1: uh, zero
0: <laughs> <laughs> i've got no transferability i'd Blime, love that's to. that's not true <laughs> because you've just you've spoken about the fact that your career started out as teaching i, yeah. I wonder whether uh, you'd ever consider going back to teaching i'd love to mate i'd Would love you? to be a director of sport at a big
1: public school imagine on a thursday afternoon walking around telling the kid to keep his <laughs> elbow up come on come on run a bit straighter there it'd be fantastic so
3: why haven't you done that? What is it, like, what's the itch that still keeps you coming into the furnace of international rugby? I want to catch the perfect
0: game. How close have you got to coaching
3: the
1: perfect uh, game? Someone asked me the other day, I, the first year I coached, I coached our reserve grade team in, in, in my club team, and we led at half-time 32-0, and it was almost perfect rugby. Second half, we weren't so good. But now, you know, in a game of rugby, if you can control 50 minutes of the game, you'll win the game. And I want want a team that can can control it for 80 minutes. Imagine going out there and you're impossible to play against, impossible. When you've got the ball, they can't get it off you. When they've got the ball, they've got so much pressure, they're giving it back to you, and that's unrelenting. That would be fascinating.
2: Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
3: So what would you say would be the ingredients of a perfect game then for a team? So if you had to, so if you could instill characteristics in that team, what would they be doing that would deliver that outcome?
1: They have to love the grind, mate. Because, yeah, all the good things in sport are hard work. Now, there's nothing in sport that comes easily. So the ability of the best players, and I think it goes to coaches too, the ability of the best players and the best coaches is to keep doing it and don't get bored by it. Don't take any shortcuts, be insistent on standards. Keep those standards high, never drop off, and that's what that separates the really great players from the good players, and the good players from the average players. Their ability to absorb that grime, because everyone thinks sports fun and fantastic, and it is when you when you watch it, but the actual process of putting that into place is is, is hard work.
0: One of the things that people often ask us about when they listen to these podcast episodes is they question whether it's good for us to talk about the grind and the effort and the sacrifice and the struggle because they, they worry about the mental health impacts on people feeling they have to struggle to be successful. Where do you stand on thinking you have to struggle to be successful?
1: Yeah, well, I think yeah, high performance, if you have that term, high performance is, is not the environment for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And I th- think we've got to be quite clear about that. For some people, it's not right. Um, and there's other environments you can be in. Um, but if you choose to be in that environment, then you choose to make that decision to absorb that, the pain, the, ch- the choice of, of how you go about things. And, and to me, then, Of course, you've always got to worry about the welfare of the player. And I think increasingly today, we've got to be more careful about the welfare of the players. But the players make that choice and coaches make that
0: choice. So do you enjoy the grind? I love it,
1: mate. Um, You know, I usually, at the end of a tournament, I get sick because I I miss that grind.
0: Really?
3: Yeah. So... How rounded do you think somebody can be if they if they choose to go into a high-performance environment?
1: Uh, look, I've I've seen a lot of really good coaches be, be very rounded. I don't think everyone can be. I don't think I'm a very rounded person. You know, watching rugby and match of the day is probably not too rounded, is it? <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I think you can be. You've just got to make the right choices and you've got to work out your you work plan. Yeah, I'll give you an example. For me, I was acting principal at this high school Um, and we had our daughter and my wife said, you can't be working 15, 16 hours a day. So I cut back and I used to go in there Monday morning at at 3am and work feverishly for about about five or six hours before everyone came in to get the week organised. And you can change change the way you work to to get a better balance.
0: Regardless of your career or industry, do you think that to be at the elite level, to get to the top, that is the level of relentless dedication that's required? Can you get there without that?
1: Well, I think you have to have focus. I think focus is the big thing. I, I don't think the number of hours or or the time or the volume of work is the important thing. I think it's the focus. And yeah, you know, again, I, I, one of the books I've read and I've spoken to this guy is that Cal Newport who's written deep work and just your ability to... To work out when you're the most productive and and make sure you set that time to A do big the most best for
0: people in the modern yeah, world with is social media 100%. and constant this era of information.
1: And to do the most difficult work when you're at your best. And then when, do are, the,
0: you, when are you at your best?
1: Uh, either early in the morning or late at night.
0: So how do you cut through all of the shit at that time of day to just focus
1: well I usually go in about 5am and 5am to 6am is usually my most productive time but then after that I I train where where I usually get some good thoughts where I'm not even thinking but I usually get a couple of good thoughts for the day and then I'll go back to the office so generally from 5 to about 8 is my best time and the rest of the day I don't try to do anything serious apart from just work with the players and then I'll do a little bit at night again if, if I'm in the right mood
3: so to ask a personal question, Eddie, where does this relentlessness, this drive, this fire in you come from?
1: Uh, well, I think it came from probably upbringing. Um, we were a working-class family. I was half Japanese, half Australian in a fairly tough, wide Australia place. So to be any good, you had to get ahead, you know, and and you had to be good at sport. So I wanted to be good at sport. and And we were... I think my mother did, went to high school, but she she was in internment camps. Father, I remember, I remember he always told me he said I was working at gold mines, son, when I was fifteen, and he did his he did his year twelve. I remember him doing it when he was fifty because he still wanted to get it. So we had that we had that nice commonality about who we were. But the opportunities of what we could do, um, yeah my eldest sister's a director of a big architecture company and she 's brilliant she's a she's got a couple of doctorates i think uh lectures at a university so she's driven in her own way. My middle sister's driven by by she just bops around from one thing to the other she's you know she's taught nearly every subject she's had her own Kimono shop where she's got kimono material from Japan and made it into modern clothes, Um, and she's a real sort of creative person. I'm sort of the one that didn't get either. I'm not that bright or not that creative, so I've had to work a bit
0: harder. I think you've done all right. You've done all right. Lots of parents listen to this podcast. Um, In many ways, you are a parent to a lot of rugby players at all times, and it's easy to get to the head of those guys. They want to play rugby. They want tactics. They want to win. What's the trick to getting to their heart that the parents listening to this podcast can, can take on board?
1: Well, I think, you yeah, know, everyone's motivated by something um, and whether it be desire to be famous, desire to be good at something, money, you've got to understand the motivation. And I think for most kids there's there'll be some sort of central motivation there and you've got to try to then work with them to find how that, that can be brought out Um, I remember I did this show for a Japanese uh, television. We went to a high school um, and I I coached them for a week. We had to try to get the team good enough to beat a university team, which is obviously a higher level, and we beat them. And and again, one of the most enjoyable kids, I remember there was this quite overweight prop um, and he was bloody terrible. Um, You know, didn't want to get involved in the game, stood back. And I I wanted to get an association. I gave him a nickname. Um, and then I I did little bits of extra work with him all week. And he made this one big run in the game. And I can remember after the game the boys were so happy for him. And I think that's the same in parenting. You got to, you've gotta just try to find how you can how you can get a strong connection on something they like doing. And kids these days, the hard thing I would say. The kids these days have so many things going on in their life and maybe you've got to try to get them to focus on a, a few less things.
0: But like a head coach, remember that nothing's neutral. Everything you say or do.
3: See, but I was going to ask you around, so your own background of coming up in that, of being an outsider in a working-class community and then being a father yourself and working in the sort of elite environments of, um, of England rugby now. How do you sort of get kids to tap into those fundamentals because they're almost entitled or privileged or some people have described them as being soft through conditioning of society. How do you cut through that to get to tap into that desire?
1: Well I think again for each player there's a, there's a certain way in certain so to speak and yeah, I always remember a great coach of mine said unless you're able to to generate an emotional connection with a player, you won't get a result. And they've got to remember conversations you have. Like I bet you can remember the teacher that you either liked a lot or disliked because he said something to you that either made you feel absolutely fantastic or made you you think I've got to change something. And that's what you're always searching for, that one way to get that connection with the player to make them want to do something that that's maybe uncomfortable for them that's gonna make them a little bit better. And it's you know, you're a bit like a, y you, you've got to be afraid to be wrong. That's that's the hard thing. You know, and you can you can sometimes lose a player because you go gone the wrong way with them. You know, we've got one player we call the bowling ball, because that's what we want him to be and he loves it. You know, he resonates with that and that's that's become a way that he's changed the way he plays. So was there one
3: example of a relationship that has given you the most satisfaction as a, uh, as a coach, where you built that relationship and seen, seen them blossom as a consequence?
1: Uh, well, I coached in South Africa, I coached a halfback called Free Dupree, uh, brilliant player. And uh, he was the first South African to play Japanese club rugby, and he came over, at a like a really good professional relationship with him. He'd play the game two rucks ahead of everyone else and then he came to, came to Suntory and played for Suntory and he just blossomed as a person, uh, became a real leader. Japanese boys loved him. He really it, it changed the way he was and, and you could see the growth. And then he played in the, he won the World Cup in 2007, played in 2011 Hadn't played any international rugby until the 2015 World Cup. Didn't play for nine months. Then for the rugby people out there, they'll remember the semi-final he played against the All Blacks where they nearly beat them. And he was absolutely brilliant. I've never seen a guy who was able to start as quite a shy Afrikaans boy to blossom into this global star.
0: And as a coach, you only get one chance to make a first impression. What are your... Tips and tricks for day one in a new job. What other things you always make sure you do?
1: Always try to light their eyes up. Yeah, that's that's the main thing. Show them where they're going to go, and then the coach's job is to create the pathway to take them there. But always work from the the end backwards. So this is where we're going, boys. Um, this is what we're going to have to do to get there. Uh, now make a choice and set that in stone almost right from the first day because you want people to be part of something special. You, know, you, you want them to feel like this is going to be something that no-one else is going to do and that, and that they've got a part to play in this and then you'll get a bit more out of them. So how, how do you choose the thing though? Uh, well, I think it's, generally it's pretty, in rugby it's pretty obvious. Like, you know, for England we wanted to win the World Cup but now it's more than that. We want to be a, a great team and I know we get criticised for saying that because it's putting ourselves, but why not? Why wouldn't you want to be? Who wants to be an average team?
3: There's a pattern here with after you, you wanted to win the World Cup in 2003 and then you uh, in the final you lost and then you went on that second cycle where things started to unravel for you. What are you doing differently with this with this second
1: cycle of the England team you've got now than what you would have done with a, Australia? A real focus on being great uh, rather than winning. Right. Um so it's almost, you yeah, know, they say the difference between process and the outcome-driven. I don't. I never think it's as, as clear as that. Yep. But what we want to focus on is the players more themselves. It is important what the team does, but I want the players to be the best version of themselves and, and we're giving them a lot more ownership. Like on a Monday, they now come in and they work out what they're doing before lunch. So they've got to organise their coaches to to work out their schedule. And it's just those little changes we're trying to bring in. We don't have wellbeing anymore. Right. So when they come down in the morning, if they're, if they're not right, find find the person you need.
3: And what's the skill
1: that you're trying to develop in them by doing that? Uh, get the team to be much more self-regulated. Right. You know, I think the greatest teams or any organisation is the self-regulation is the important thing where... The members of the team drive the team. It's not the leaders who drive the team. The leaders are just pushing and prodding and and guiding, but the team's driving the team. Brilliant.
0: Um, Before we move on to our quickfire questions at the end, Eddie, your relationship with failure, how do you develop a relationship with failure so it doesn't derail you?
1: I think there's a whole cycle of success and failure that you just keep going. So I know now we're right at the end of what we're doing now. We've just won nine games in a row, been the World Cup final, won basically two Six Nations. But we've got to break it and and go again. And that takes some pain um, because it means that we might have to change some personnel, might have to change some players. It means we might have to change the way we play a little bit. And you don't know whether that's going to be successful. And we do know what we're doing now is successful. But that's you just got to you've got to acknowledge that failure is always there that it's a, it's the biggest part of the 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 cycle you know if you have a cycle of leadership it starts with failure ends with failure but then you you've, you've got to minimize that cycle when you're in the failure to have sustainable practice within your organization
0: right quick fire questions the three non negotiable behaviors that you and the people around you have to buy into. Uh, Enthusiastic, punctual, alert.
1: What advice would you give a teenage Eddie, just starting out? My old man used to say
0: to me, which means slowly in Japanese, take your time. Not an easy thing to do sometimes. How did you react to your greatest failure? Uh, Badly. Uh, Again, World Cup
1: 2003, getting sacked as Australian coach. And what I've learned is take your time, reflect, don't jump to do anything, acknowledge what you've done poorly, and then try to fix it.
3: How important is legacy?
1: I don't control that. Um, but what I want to do is every time I go to I wanna leave them in a better state. So one of the most positive things for me, I left the Brumbies They ended up winning again in 2004, left Japan in 2015. They were better in 2019. And this English side, when I leave them, I hope they're even more successful when I leave. And then I've done a good job. And I think that's with business too. You see the good business, don't you? The great CEOs leave a business in a great state and they keep getting better. And they say, well, we don't miss him. But he's actually put that in place.
0: And finally, your one golden rule to living a high-performance life be focused.
1: Be focused on what's important. Work out what's going to make you win and focus on that.
0: Brilliant. Look, Eddie, to sit and have that 45 minutes with you is just an absolute pleasure for us. And I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the Eddie that we're talking to now is quite a different Eddie to the one that we perhaps would have had a conversation with 10 or 15 years ago.
1: Uh, Yeah, possibly. No, it's been a pleasure, guys. I really enjoyed chatting and doing a a great job with the podcast, so thanks for the invitation. Thanks, and
0: thanks for listening, by the way. I know you've listened to a few. They're quite important conversations for people to hear, I think, don't you?
1: Yeah, no, no, they're great. As I said to you off air, I I love that Matthew McConaughey one. I thought that was quite unique, and I I bought the book. I wasn't so enamoured with the book, but uh, it was a great, great podcast, guys. Good man.
0: Damien. Jake. If he's mellowed and his working day starts at 5am and he's pretty much done in terms of his thinking by 8am, I would be fascinated to have met him 20 years ago, pre-stroke, pre-losing his job with the Australians when he was anything but mellow in his own head.
3: Yeah, definitely. I've been lucky enough to be around uh, Eddie um, on a few occasions and I know that He had a reputation for being fairly fearsome with his work ethic and the high standards that he set for other people. But I think there's a really powerful point that he made there when he spoke about the stroke and the impact that that had had on him. And I think for anyone listening to this, uh, I think it's important to realise that you don't need to have the equivalent of a car crash, whether that's emotional or physical, to be able to go back and reflect and change your mind and maybe change your approach. You know, I think we're capable of doing it at any time. And that's where Eddie's point around after that Australian uh, job, he'd had taken six months off to have a serious look at what he was doing, what he'd done well and what he could do better. I think just that ability to introspect and reflect is, is hugely powerful for all high performers.
0: And we've spoken to numerous coaches who are currently working on this podcast. You know, let me just pick out three. Um, Frank Lampard, Steven Gerrard, Eddie Jones, all three of them doing amazing jobs in their own leagues, in their own respective fields. Every single one of them, absolutely relentless. None of them are just playing at it a bit, kind of enjoying it, but not really giving it everything. And I, And I think that that is the key to anyone in that position. Don't like it's such a difficult one on this podcast because part of me wants to sort of say, look, don't push yourself to the limit because that can be unhealthy. But I think we have to have an absolute realization, right? That if you are going to get to the level that some of our guests are getting to relentlessness is absolutely a non-negotiable. And Eddie said exactly that.
3: Absolutely. his is three words.
0: Embrace the grind um, are at the heart of,
3: his philosophy and the and that's been at the heart of what, as you say, every elite coach has done for us. And I think this is something that we've had questions of, and why we asked that yesterday. Well, how rounded can you be with that? And the answer is, well, you've got to love what you do, and by definition, that means that there'll be other things that have to go by the board that you won't always be able to make your kids uh, choir practice. You won't always make every school play. The, you know the sacrifices that have to be made when you're embracing the grind
0: talking of kids this is what i relate it to okay because i think that it's really important we we are totally honest with people that you need to be relentless but i think it's also key to say that only be relentless and single-minded if it gives you fulfillment if it gives you happiness if it's a thing for you and i relate it to being a parent right i we all as parents and i will admit and as will my wife harriet and everyone else. You get to the end of the day and you think, bloody hell, man, I've had enough of this. The kids have wound me up. It's been really hard. We tried to go out for the day. Everything went wrong. That was just an S-H-I-T day, right? What happens the next morning at 6.30 when you hear your beautiful child's little pattering feet running down the corridor saying, I want to go downstairs. What do you do? You get up, you go again. Because that, that pot of passion, that love for your children, it's all been restocked. It's all been restored. And every day you wake up, you're ready to go again as a parent. And I think that for someone like Eddie or Frank or Stephen or any of the other high performers that we've spoken to, the life they live is like being a parent of this, of this job, of this career. And so every day they're stocked up again. They're full. I think that's a really
3: powerful point. And I know you've made it in different contexts as well, Jacob, when you speak about consistency and relentless, but there's a key word in the middle of that, which is being happy. And it's about putting joy or happiness at the heart of what you do. So it doesn't feel like a job because you're loving doing it and therefore it feels like a pleasure. You're not thinking about the sacrifices. You're thinking about all the benefits and all the pleasure that you get from it. And I think this is something that I wouldn't want anyone to listen to this and misunderstand that these people are relentless, but they're not doing it because they enjoy the struggle. They're doing it because they enjoy what they get out of it. And that's also a non-negotiable.
0: And actually, sometimes for them, part of the joy and the thrill is the struggle. That Let's just be honest. And for other people, they, they can't cope with that. And that's absolutely fine. Everyone's different.
3: Yeah. Again, to repeat a phrase that we've used on this in previous episodes is that we're not suggesting there is a way. We're suggesting that there are a number of ways and it's for everybody to to make their own decision, to use their own judgment as to what's acceptable for them.
0: I know a lot of people often ask us, Damien, about books and things. Um, there's a couple of books which really ring true with Eddie's experiences. I've read uh, one of them, the 5am club, and I'm keen to read the power hour, which is another one. Then the thinking behind that, if you've listened to the pod and you're thinking, man, I love Eddie's relentlessness. I love his sense of achievement. How do I get there? Both of those books talk about, Making the decision that at the beginning of your day, you're going to get up while everyone else is asleep, while the world is still in slumber, and you are going to achieve. And like Eddie said, by eight o'clock, his thinking, his processes, his day's work is pretty much done. It's kind of like 8 a.m. onwards, anything you achieve is a win.
3: Yeah, definitely. Well, there's the old saying, isn't there? There's no traffic jams on the extra mile. And I think when you go that extra mile and you're prepared to invest yourself in doing something to a high standard you won't find many people that are getting in your way at that time.
0: Love it. Love it. Right. Damien, um, as always a pleasure to sit and speak to Eddie uh, with you. Uh, I think he's an absolutely fascinating character and um, I can see how he gets results.
3: Definitely. Yeah. And I think he's, I, I think there was a key bit of recognizing that he's learned that not everybody does have to share that same relentlessness in the same way for him to be able to engage and get the best out of them. So, no, it's been an absolute
0: treat. So thanks for having me along again, Jake. Thanks, mate. Well, Damien, what an amazing reaction we've had to Josh Warrington. Do you know what? I think that with him, it wasn't just the things that he said. It was the way that he said them that has had so many people talking about sharing and downloading his episode from last week.
3: Just pure passion, wasn't it, Jake? And what I love is the fact that people have got over... Accents, you know, or got over somebody using a bit of choice language and rather than get hung up on the irrelevant stuff, they've listened to a lad who's on a journey uh, with self-belief. He's come from humble beginnings and yet he's backed himself all the way. And it just... it's been incredibly satisfying that people have have invested the time to listen to him.
0: There's a really lovely comment we got from Jasper, who got in touch. And let me just remind you, if you can rate and review this podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from, it genuinely makes a huge difference to us being able to continue to give you this content for free. Jasper says, hi, I would like to just say, I love your podcast. They're so helpful. One of the best podcasts I've ever listened to. And I get onto them every single morning. They help me so much. And another person saying, I wanted to show my appreciation for your pod. Recently, I was forced into a fairly significant career change and it gave me time for reflection. During that process, I found your pod courtesy of a friend. I'm sure I've never listened to anything that carries so much meaning and resonance. The lessons I pick up from people you talk to, I inject directly into my mindset and it gives me the courage to think and act in a way that not only creates better outcomes, but gives me more satisfaction. I'm a better professional friend and husband for the perspective I've picked up from you and your guests. Please keep it up and understand you're making real, tangible changes in the lives of your listeners. I mean, that's what this is about for us, Damien. We've said a million times it's about the outcome, not the income. And that is an example of the outcome of these episodes.
3: Yeah, I think it's really incredibly humbling that people are just coming with an open mind, being prepared to listen and be influenced by the lessons and the journeys you know i think you've said a number of times jake that if you were to add up the hundreds of years worth of learnings that are being passed on in an hour from all of our guests in, the, in all of the series i think you'd have to be a fool not to want to think there's something in there for you that you can take away and apply as a as a as a parent a professional uh and as a partner
0: Thanks also to Martin who says, honestly, these podcasts are like a a new boost of discovery and positivity every single day. He says, it makes me think positively about the future. I'm now counting down the days to be home and have my two teenage sons back in the UK. I'm hooked onto these podcasts. Brilliant stuff. Can't wait to hear the next episode. Well, talking of the next episode, how about a sneaky little listen to what's coming up next from the High Performance Podcast? I don't want to be a flesh in the pan. I want I want people to talk about me in the pubs in Belfast and and Northern Ireland and Ireland and the UK in 20 30 years time and remember me for a well to be a, being a good man
2: and also a great fighter.
0: Oh, I'm excited about that as well, Damien. and That's what I love about this, this series is that we're dropping episodes on Mondays and Wednesdays. And so people who've just listened to this have only got a couple of days to wait until they hear from Carl Frampton. And again, he is a man with single minded determination to achieve one thing and one thing only. And that is to be a triple weight champion. Um, I just hope it happens for him because he's pinning a lot of hopes on it, isn't he?
3: Yeah, he's invested an awful lot on it. I think he's, um, he's spoken about that he feels that that will allow him to truly be in rare company that no other Irish fighter has ever won three world titles in the past. So he feels that that secures his legendary status. Although I feel that both of us believe that he's already got there. He doesn't need this to
0: validate him. I think there's a big element of that. You know, we've spoken so much on this podcast about life's about the journey, not the destination. And we do have to be careful about thinking too much about where we end up because the journey is a lot longer than the arrival. Damien, thank you so much as always. It's it's just fascinating watching this grow and develop and become a bit of a monster really, isn't
3: it? <laughs> yeah, and it, and it's incredibly satisfying, you know, like you say, if people are listening and taking real benefit away that they can use with their children and for the next generation as well. That gives us
0: both an awful lot of um, satisfaction. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Damien, as always. We couldn't do this without you. Thank you to Will. Thank you to Hannah. Thanks to Finn and Sophie at Rethink Audio for their hard work on this episode. A big shout out, as always, to Lotus Cars. You know that we couldn't do it without them. and They've been there since the very beginning. Most of all, though, thanks to all of you at home. Look, we just are lucky enough to have these conversations, Damien and myself. What really is making this podcast have the kind of impact we dreamed of is you sharing it talking about it, understanding that every single life can be improved from listening to this podcast and the plans continue to be big. We'll see you very soon for another episode of the High Performance Podcast.